0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets, here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm coming to you live from Austin today. I am on an eight day cross country tour, sort of like the pre pandemic days back on the road. Uh, but we're going to have uh, a great, interesting show today. Professor Siegel, our co host, is going to be joining us in the second half of the program to talk about the markets, the inflation report that he's been talking so much about. Uh, but we're going to have a really a deep dive into China. Uh, I'm pleased to have one of my colleagues, Li Chen Ren, who has been my go-to China expert, uh, keeps me updated all the time, joining us. Uh, we're going to have a great guest to go de- in in detail. Uh, please note, Li Chen and I are registered representatives for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and these are guests are his own and not those of Wisdom Trade. We're gonna be talking with Jason Su, who is a uh, founder, chairman, chief investment officer of Ray He does he's some of the original quantitative factor work that builds a lot of indexes uh, and now is his own firm, focused on Asia, China. Uh, Jason, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us on the show today.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks, Jeremy, for the invitation. Hi Li Chen.
1: Hi. It's exciting to have you here. Uh, you know, it, I think China has been one of the key markets uh, where some of the sell-offs really started uh, February of last year. They, they had some really big moves in some of the China tech stocks. I'm curious, before we get into the current dynamics, just tell our listeners a little bit about how you came, why you wanted to found your own firm, some of your background in indexing, and uh, and how you came to be at, at Reliance.
2: Yeah. So most people know me from uh, my days of research affiliates uh, you know, doing factor investing and asset allocation. Uh, I actually started like a little pilot program, research affiliates back in 2009, really at the invitation of the two Chinese stock exchanges, Shenzhen and Shanghai stock exchanges. They wanted me to go help them build uh, factor indices. And that's how I started to explore the Chinese market. And when I realized, wow, like, 85% of all trading in China is conducted by retail. So all the behavioral finance stuff we study in school, they work well in China. In fact, they work insanely well. Uh, and that really got me to think about uh, you know, what can I do with this large alpha reservoir. And so as MSCI was adding more and more China into its benchmark exposure. I thought, hey, this might be that one last great wave in my career where the beta is interesting and more important for for asset allocators, and the alpha is is, is phenomenal. Right? It's a really really deep alpha reservoir, and and thus you know the the origin story of Raelian Global Advisors.
1: Very interesting. And tell before we get to to all that, given some of your work, the original work on uh, factor fundamental indexation with with Rafi, how do you think has progressed from those early days? you know we 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 were all along believers in value investing type mandates, and then you have this growth run is is now the return to value coming back? what's what's your sense?
2: So first of all, I think it's a return to sanity, right? I mean, you know value investing, uh, we really ignore the other half of it. It's really kind of anti, you know, glamour and glitz investing, right? You know, value stocks are sure solid. You know, dividend producers over time, but a lot of value investing's outperformance is if you just avoid, you know, sex and glitz. You know, don't get drawn into the hype. Uh, you, you're going to do well in the long run, and so this is a return to normality. Uh, you know, with a lot of, I think, the, you know, the messiahs of the disruptive technology now falling off the, 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 you know, the pedestal. Uh, so. Uh yeah, I, I think uh, is gonna do well while that continues to happen, and then maybe we'll begin another uh, cycle of uh, exuberance where uh, value will struggle a little bit as well. And so, kind of back to your comment about, you know, factor investing. Yeah, generation one, and you know, value is clearly the the clear cut, you know, believable, credible factor. But what we now know is you really want to have a diversified. Uh, roster of factors, just in case, you know, you get a great value year and then three years of, you know, painful underperformance, but you got to have some other factors to sort of kick in and diversify.
1: Muchen, do you want to come in with any questions before I continue?
0: Yeah, um, actually, Jason, uh, in terms of China, um, sometimes the word China, when we think about value is really more quality. So, you know, as you, like when when people think about China value, it's actually more, if you look at dig down, it's more like a China quality uh, definition. So how, you know, I know in, in your strategies, uh, you have, you know, both value and quality. So what's, what's the, uh, like what, how how do you fom- formulate uh, in terms of uh, b- balancing between value and quality?
2: Uh, Li Chen, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not to say like the, the pharma French type very simple value metrics don't work in China. They work well because again you 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 size step a lot of the the hype stocks that that end up you know destroying a lot of wealth. But if you really want to capture um, what's available in terms of you know all that alpha, you got to combine value with quality. Otherwise, you end up having essentially a state-owned enterprise portfolio. Sure, they're you know good dividend payers but uh, there's just no growth capture, right? It's not very diversified at all. And once you start to put in quality, so you really think about, am I paying a good price uh, for different types of industries, right? Are you paying a good price for growth? Uh, you end up doing much, much better interacting those two factors together. So you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot involved
1: in China. Uh, the state ownership is one interesting question we've focused on a bit. Um, but I, let, let's talk about the general sentiment towards China today. Uh, in, in your firm, you know, talk about who are the types of people you're speaking to. Is it is it mostly? Are you trying to get to foreigners getting access to China, particularly? Are you are you focused on the local domestic market? Uh, give us a little bit of background about about who you who you're talking to on a day to day basis.
2: Yeah. So we started off really selling know Chinese exposures to the Chinese uh, you know there's huge home country bias there of course so it's actually quite easy to sell Chinese exposures to the Chinese and it's kind of funny right you kind of have this foreign quant shop operating in China who then sells Chinese exposure to the Chinese uh, you kind of go you know what's the competitive advantage but you know quant is actually very new in China you know most of the managers in, in China are kind of sharpshooter you know six-stock concentrated portfolio so we, we work a different way for a lot of local people and with success there uh, we began really um, exporting and in, in <laughs> i guess uh, you know china's a ex- big export center including you know chinese exposures to equity market so today we spend a lot more time talking to uh, you know financial advisors who are looking to understand China like instead of just buying say you know offshore ADR's the Alibaba's how do they get access to names that they haven't heard of that names that could become the next Alibaba so we spend a lot of time talking to financial advisors who have curiosities about access certainly uh, big institutional investors and their consultants again you know China to them is is really brand new especially uh, you know using Hong Kong connect access to get onshore maybe applying for QP quota, how does that work? What are the pros and cons? Uh, you know, should they use a local manager? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so you know, we, we spend most of our days talking to people who, who see us as sort of a, a Sherpa for them when it comes to China.
0: Hey, Jason. Um- When you are talking to these clients, um, what's generally your biggest argument to to say focus on China, Asia, and also in particular, uh, in terms of you know your sector view? Like, I think uh, I, I don't know. I I absolutely you know your papers are my. Uh, early, uh, you know, entrance to the Chinese factors. So everybody knows about, you know, the, the papers you have written, but really would like to get a little bit of your um, sector view as well, because China's market seems to be very sector-dominated, at least in the narrative.
2: Yeah, so, so uh, you know, I'll... Uh, Answer the first question first, which is, you know, the objections people have. And then we can talk about how do you model sector rotations or are there like a persistent sector that is just where the performance is? Um, So a lot of the investors we run into, um, they naturally fall into two easy camps, right? They're the investors who just want to argue with you and say, you know, China's an autocracy, right? They don't like Xi Jinping. Uh, You know, they don't like a lot of things about China. So it's uninvestable. And again, you know I kind of liken that to more of a ESG uh, type of thinking, which is from a values perspective There's some aspect of China they don't they don't like, just like you know they might not they might not like Microsoft because it has violent video games like so like that's a value judgment. And so I kind of go, you know great, you know if, if it doesn't line up with what you believe in, um, you know but great, you know in the ESG context, I totally get it. Uh, so most people I end up talking to are the people who say, look, they're curious about China, right? They haven't made up their mind, and they also understand from an investment perspective, look, there's nothing that's really, you know, uninvestable. It's just a matter of, uh, is it cheap enough, you know, for you to bear the risk, right? Uh, And can you sort of risk manage enough uh, to make it work? So I mostly spend time talking to people about the real risks of investing in, in China, not just the obvious, you know, headline risk, uh, and talk about the cost of access, talk about where opportunities are. you know show them uh, research on, hey, look, if you just apply some simple you know, factor strategies and you localize that and really extract the behavioral alphas there, you know what's available uh the long run characteristics of the the beta uh, so you know that's uh those are kind of the conversations people get curious about, and if you can help them understand look um when it's cheap enough, it's a great diversifier. I think most people um, recognize from mass allocation perspective, you know, they they allocate the EM, right? There are a lot of uncomfortable countries in EM and China is just one of many. And in fact, China's probably been the best performing, you know, within that EM basket. Now, when it comes to sort of sectors, right? a lot of people in China, right? This is more and more domestic Chinese investors than, than global investors. The domestic investors uh, really love sector rotation stories, right? It's like one hot theme, one bubble after another, and they've never done well. Like right? anyone who's been a big sector rotation player in China, they're just chasing in. You know, they they got into solar, you know, near the top and got blown out. They got into EV, and look at how that's done. They got into all the big battery thematic stuff, and that hasn't done really well, right? So, uh, these sector rotations uh, strategies. Um, just just don't seem to to work, uh, and really you want to be broadly diversified because all the sectors in China are growth sectors, right? They're just in a different phase from the U.S., right? In the U.S., okay, only growth is tech, so you're gonna have to pay up through your noses if you want some growth. But in China, everything is growth, right? So you, you can you can you know like the the current richest guy in China, right? He sells water, right? The last richest guy in China, he sold hot pot, right? Growth sectors in China are not what we think of here in the U.S.
0: Yeah, actually, I um, want to add one comment. The richest guy is from Zhejiang, where I grew up. And everybody, when people talk to Zhejiang, they want to say Jack Ma. I'm like, no, the other guy is the richest guy who also, yeah. you know, from Zhejiang. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Jeremy.
1: Let, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Jason Su, from Founder Reliant Global Advisors at, at Asia-focused uh, and maybe China, specialist here on what's been happening. Jason, I want to come to like a, there's a lot we can drill into on, on the investment landscape. Uh, I want to start, keep it high level for a second. Um, when you think about what people should be targeting in global portfolio allocations towards China, you, you talked about MSCI adding more China, a shares uh, there's, you know, and, and we just talked about some of the value metrics of, you know, if you think about some of the fundamental metrics you know russia would have been one of the countries that showed up very high i mean we had high dividend strategies that were coming into the year eight percent in russia because they were the cheapest markets around and then you have a scenario where russia actually becomes a zero like it's wild (laughs) um and it's wild what happened with all the politics there and it's 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 all, all the politics on why they sort of forced write downs there what do you this uninvestable question, I know when Siegel would come on, he would say, when people say it's uninvestable, that's when I want to go into China. Um, but what, what, do you say, what do you say to the risks of now with Russia being front and center to something happening? How do you think people should think about sizing China in portfolios?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I, I think I'm on the side with, uh, with Jeremy. Uh, you know, when everyone says it's uninvestable, I get kind of interested, right? That means the discount you get, right? The the fear premium is so large that it might be worth your while to take some risk there. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right. We we need to use the Russia example as a constant reminder to us that no one knows anything for sure. Cheaper could get even cheaper. It could get to zero, right? Um So... Everything in investing is about probabilities, right? It's about the edge you have, uh, and you know it's like any card counter, right? He doesn't bet all of his wealth on one hand, uh, nor should you, right? If you feel like China's really cheap, or a while back, hey, you know, Russia pays a great dividend, you th- you should think of that in the context of, hey, you know, uh, should this be five percent of my portfolio, two percent of my portfolio, right? It's five percent, right? If you lose all of it, you're down five percent of the portfolio. That would still have been a much better outcome if you're, you know, all in S and P 500 and it's uh, down, you know, 25. So uh, it's all about sizing. And so when you think about China, clearly, right, you know, China is much more volatile than the U.S. just from a risk parity perspective, right? Uh, even if you ignore everything else, you just look at volatility. You know, China is going to be well less, you know, than than half of the allocation you want to give to say U.S. Now you add in other risk factors and all that. You know, maybe China should only be five percent. Now, the truth is, today, if you look at China as your equity, right, China, it's offshore, offshore, everything, China, and you say, how much is China within your portfolio? You might be surprised. China is about the size of Apple, right? Like, you probably have more allocation to Apple in the average global portfolio than people have to China. And and you kind of go, well, but most of Apple's, you know, half of Apple's sort of revenue and volumes come from China, right? So there's sort of a bit of a, a paradox, right? You get, you, you, you know, you, you have China risk in your portfolio. And then when it's Apple, it feels totally safe. When it's actually China, you feel like it's unacceptable. <laughs> no,
1: it's an interesting, that's what a lot of people when they talk about, I even Bogle, when he was talking about people going overseas, he would say, you get this multinational, do you need to go overseas? But there's a very different valuation on Apple versus yep. Alibaba. And so, you know, yep. if you want to get the exposure, um, I mean, obviously it comes with different sets of risk. Um, let's talk a little bit about the current dynamic. As you think about the policies happening, um, and, and Lee Chen, you've been writing a lot about this, uh, any sense of what's happening on, you know, people look at COVID zero and question, like what's happening, what is the local politics dynamic today uh, maybe, Jason, you can give your perspective on the local politics, and Lee Chen, you could add in anything that, that you've been talking about.
2: Yeah, I bet you Lee Chen's got juicy uh, inside <laughs> stories there. Now, I would say, you know, the, the blunt interpretation there, there's obviously, um, you know, some face-saving issue going on, right? Um, first of all, let's just say, look, no one knows exactly how COVID was going to evolve, what the right policy uh, was going to be. And uh, and so, you know, China initially came out smelling roses when it locked down Wuhan dramatically, uh, and then seemed to have to sort of protected itself from, you know, COVID spreading like wildfire. And they then locked down to that, you know, draconian lockdown as the way to manage COVID and sort of didn't evolve with the science and the new findings. And uh, and so now they kind of go, oh, do we go in a an bow face and say, okay, the American approach maybe in the long run is the right approach. Um, since they've been making fun of it so much. Uh, so there's very much of a face issue there. Uh, now, you compound on top of that. Now, this comes, you know, the, the juicy gossip party, compound on top of that. There are a lot of firms out there whose job is to help the government do testing, right? Testing centers, testing kids, testing labs. And uh, all of that is fully funded by the National uh, you, know, you know, Health Security Account, right? Which is a giant squash fund. So basically, um, everyone wants to, to, you know, a slice of that that giant pie. And so, you know, a bit of corruption, a little bit of, you know, pursuing policy at all costs uh, has resulted in, I think, the the tragic lockdown of Shanghai. Right, they were estimating that they kept going the way they were going and just test everyone over and over again across China, Uh, that was going to cost about, you know, 6% of GDP, right? Just look at how much money that is and how many interested hands uh, may be influencing policy thinking.
0: Yes, um, I've been tweeting about um, COVID uh, the last few months and every day, mainly because I think this year and even now that uh, Shanghai has, uh, you know, gone down significantly, COVID is still the biggest risk of China's economy this year because, you know, we are only half of the year and there's still six more months. And usually winter uh, is is when the virus, you know, comes back a little bit more. Um, in terms of COVID, I really believe the situation is that, first, the local support for uh, COVID zero policy is actually high. I think this is one of the biggest misunderstandings. Um, when you uh, you know read a lot of uh, uh, media here uh, talking about it, it always put you know the government um uh, the government versus people narrative here but actually really the the support for covid policy was high and that was something which i think uh, people are missing a little bit so even after shanghai the the support is still i would say close to 50% if not you know 80% before um, so that makes it uh really difficult to switch uh if you think you know if you have if, if, think about it in the u s right you take any political issue and you have fifty percent who are supporting it, then the president is less likely to take a dramatic risk and the second thing is this year is a party congress uh, uh in October and the so called dynamic zero success is one of the 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 president's uh you know one of the one of the he's uh you know he is very proud of uh, that that he will use to to boast for his uh, third term so that's a uh, second uh, reason. the third reason is as Jason mentioned uh, even though actually just a couple of days ago the national um health insurance fund came out and says no you cannot use uh testing uh, uh our money for testing if you want to have this routine testing the local government you have to find uh, your own money. Uh, that really has cut down a little bit, but if you see the local governments, if you do COVID policy well, you got rewarded. You know? That is so clear. Uh, you know, Shanghai's party actually would have sailed into the highest power if there was no Shanghai. But now he's uh, whether he can get into the uh, the top, you know, nine or seven person uh inner circle um, is now in doubt because of a COVID. So if you if you are a political person and you want to advance your career, you you clearly see that you have to you know put COVID zero there. Now in the economic uh, uh economically important provinces like Shenzhen and Guangzhou, indeed uh, they could afford to do this testing, and they are doing um, every three days or every five days. So I do I do believe this will continue uh, for a while
1: let me come back to jason I, oh go ahead. go ahead
2: jason i was going to add to something that that um uh, Lee mentioned because you know uh, i we have an office in, in taiwan and we got we got office in uh, in shanghai as well and this effect she was describing is true in in, in taiwan because you know i i i went to visit our office in taipei and all of our taipei staff says look you uh, we don't want to see you right you're endangering other people we got 80-year-old grandma right like we want lockdown we want to stay at home we we don't want you to run around and of course you know in my office we got quite a number of you know American expats working in Taiwan you know they find it to be really hard to understand they're quite irritated by the local sentiment um uh, but you know so if you if you're interviewing an expat in Taiwan he would say oh the government's got crazy unreasonable policy and impinging on you know personal freedom but if you talk to the locals many of them go no this is this is what we think is right and in fact uh, you know, we say oh, zero COVID is somewhat crazy and uh, crazy as it may be. Right. This is part of the Chinese culture. Right? I'm sure you've all gone to school with a Chinese you know, student who insists on getting 100 percent on the exam. Right. Like 80 is an A, but they want to get 100. And for a lot of people like I run into in Taipei, right. It's like for them, you know, zero case is what the government should achieve. Right? That's perfection. Like if they were cases like that, would, that's like back of a performance, the president's popularity falls. And and it's just something hard for us Americans to understand, just as like we, we kind of go, hey, 80s and A, you know, why do you need 100? Uh, but uh, it is actually quite important to, to the local people that the government achieves perfection.
0: This is somewhat really important, because I think when people look at uh, things happening in mainland, and most of them just instantly think it's the party, it's the CCP, but a lot of things. Uh, For this COVID, you can see the old age vaccination rate was very low in Taiwan, in Hong Kong and in mainland, like all three places with different uh, political, um, you know, setup, but end up having the similar uh, old age vaccination Obviously, right now, uh, Taiwan has decided to live with COVID. And, you know, thankfully, now they are probably at the peak of the deaths. But uh, I think one or two months later, they will be much more like uh, Vietnam, you know, some other South East. Asian countries. But I think this sentiment, um, the local high sentiment, is really the key to understand this current policy. And plus, you know, the party is using this as a political capital, as a kind of, you know, just keep remember in 2020, when they locked down Wuhan, I don't think China was was thinking that they could get to zero. At, at that time, when the lockdown was really tried to uh, adhere to the American idea of flattening the curve, it just ended up getting to zero. Then you know the then you know Hong Kong and, and Taiwan these countries you know stayed in zero. So a, a significant amount is really luck. It's not necessarily you know particular to the party or, or even China situation.
1: We're talking a little bit of politics on some of these questions, and you know I, I think the some of the sentiment on China look like it's starting to bottom earlier in this week. You saw some big moves up, some big moves down. Um, You know, I've been watching to see if, like, the Alibaba eventually IPO's ant as one of the signs (laughs) that some of this was going to come to an end, and you had some headlines back and forth on that this week. Um, But, but Jason, as as a fundamental factor investor, um, how do you start thinking about politics as a factor? Like, is some of this politics, Coming to an end, in your view, uh, and then Li Chen, maybe your, your your thoughts too.
2: Yeah, so we actually, um, you know, have spent a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how do I model politics? Like, if everyone says, you know, China is very uh, policy driven market, and in fact, like, absolutely is, right? Is it something that a quant, right, a factor investor could actually capture, or is that always in the realm of a you know sharpshooter, you know, stock picker domain? Uh, and uh, and so what we have actually built is uh we, we sort of built a fact that's based on political connectivity uh so is someone connected to beijing who sort of sits on the board who is the the ceo or the chairman uh, versus whether you know the person is connected to local politics well, what we've seen is if you're connected to beijing right it generally predicts uh in any in any average year, about a two and a half percent outperformance versus the average company, right? Not not even state-owned enterprises. The average company that are perfectly, you know, privately operated, but if you're locally connected to kind of uh, a local, uh, you know, political bosses, uh, you have a like a enormous underperformance, like a six percent underperformance. So like it spreads about nine percent. So clearly, understand the politics makes makes a big difference, and being connected to Beijing means you understand policy favors, and oftentimes the fact that you have a senior person from Beijing running the shop, it means it's the A team, right? This is a turnaround job, and uh, this is of like you know systemic importance to the economy. Uh, so, so that's one way we draft off of that. Uh, something else is we also realize a lot of the mean reversion we observe. Uh, intermediate horizon mean reversion that we observe in prices which allow us to build these mean reversion factors is because the Chinese policymakers um, Are very experimental, right? Um, you know, they started policy making by just copying like literally cut and paste, you know American regulations and Taiwan regulations Japanese regulations, right? And it's like a giant mess of incoherency And then they just sort of iterate and fix stuff. Right? It's like, okay, all right, we overreact to that uh, correct that right and then they do something new and markets overreact to it and then they correct that. So there's a lot of mean reversion coming out of this sort of very experimental, um, and you can call it somewhat immature policymaking because they haven't had free markets for a very long time. Certainly they haven't had a financial market for a very long period of time. So you expect the policymaking uh to take time to sort of settle down. And so there's a lot of very experimental uh policy making going on. So oftentimes it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, it drives a huge mean reversal pattern. Uh, as you trade. And then that, again, is something that quants are very good at picking up and then sort of creating that into a a factor strategy.
0: Thank you, Jason. I I think this is indeed a very uh, useful way to uh, discuss China, particularly last year. There's really three kinds of uh, uh, regulations. One is the kind of crackdown on the education technology, uh, education private companies. I think that one was indeed very unexpected and also very atypical. Usually, that's not how Chinese policy came about. Um, it was so swift and uh, uh, no walking back. Even though the Ministry of Education was fired uh, for for doing this, they but they never walked back the policy. Um, but the others, the anti trust, the end, the DD uh, to a degree. I think DD is a little bit um, uh, idiosyncratic. uh, it is It it's much more about the family behind DD. Uh. Over miscalculated their own political power, so I I usually wouldn't use dd as a as a actually typical way China does the policy. But if you look at the other data quality and uh, and financial to a degree, it is indeed like Jason said, um, very uh, experimental. Uh, it goes, you know, h- how do you regulate uh, fintech? Such a you know dominant player like Ant, and you can see the back and forth. Um, but on the other hand, it is also have firm. Um, a few areas are very firm, like it wants to treat Ant as a financial company, not as a technology company. I think a, a lot of um, last couple of days there was you know rumor that it was denied by China's uh, CSRC, the SEC equivalent, um, is it, because you know Ant really haven't entirely sorted out this this uh, uh, you know the regulatory uh, framework yet um so i think uh, that's you know short term reversal in some way is is good yeah, you know for for people like uh, us you know there 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 is a, a factor you could actually use to cushion some of these uh, policy impact
1: well, I think uh, we're going to get into. I, I'm, I'm very curious to get from Jason's view some of the sectors. I'm, I'm very curious to get some some views on China tech, what's happening there, and some other things. How he's thinking about factors and 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 what's going on in the markets. Uh, well, we're talking with Jason Sue of Reliant Global Advisory, Chen Ren, uh, my colleague at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, usually, we had Professor Siegel to kick us off, but we got him. On the top half of our second segment here, Professor, I know it's a busy day for you. Talking inflation in the markets last week, you said yeah. inflation is going to come out ahead of expectations. We
3: got that. Yeah, <laughs> way ahead uh, of, it, of it, and uh, and the market, you know, reacted uh, as 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 you would expect. I mean, the yields are up. Uh, I guess maybe just a new cyclical high, 316 on the 10-year. The real rate is up. I see the 10-year tips at 36 basis points. I think that is now a cyclical high. I mean, this don't forget this rate was minus one percent late last year. Uh, so we've had almost a you know 150 basis point move in the real rate. Well, listen, even if profits remain the same and earnings re- remain the same, you increase that numerator. The denominator, by, you know 150 basis points you're going to discount uh those earnings uh are going to go down by uh 15 to uh the, uh, the price 15 to 20 percent and and that's exactly what the market has gone down so uh uh and there's fear of a recession i mean i i actually think right now i mean i'm we're looking at at if if earnings come out and i think they're still going to come close we're talking about 2020 you're talking about 17 for the S&P. Ex-Tech, I think you're talking about 14. You're probably talking about 13 or 12 on value stocks, depending on how you pick them. And, uh, oh, my gosh, when you when you think about long run and you're an accumulator long run, this is, this is exactly what you want to pick up. Doesn't mean there won't be more pain. Um, uh, you know, I now advocate that uh, Powell next week, Go a hundred basis points by bringing July forward, say, listen, we've decided wow. to bring July forward and due um, to June, uh, and we're going to see how much the economy slows and and whether we have to take more action. In other words, not saying hundred now and then 50, 50, 50, but saying let's bring let's bring these two. Get a hold of the narrative, not this drip, drip, drip. You know, not that we just have to warn, uh, you know, everybody. We can't do anything unexpected, no matter how bad the data comes. I mean, this this is not a policy of taking control. Someone who takes control looks at the data and acts. Um, and I think uh, you would have an initial sell-off in the market. But if you said it's bringing forward and then we can pause and see what happens, I think you will get a rally after that. Uh, I doubt this will happen, very honestly, because he's a very deliberate man, doesn't want to scare the markets. That's one thing he's told, been told. But I think at this particular time, you've got to say, I've been, I'm taking control. Um, and, and by the way, all I'm doing is moving up by eight weeks, a move that I've already promised I was going to make. And uh, so he's not saying that cumulative, this necessarily means more increase than what he would have had earlier. That's what I would do. As I said, I think it's against the odds, honestly, because of his deliberate We'll go 50 now. 50 again in July. I know the market has now moved 50 in September. It seems silly. Why, why, when the inflation is bad right now, you know you're going to move 150 basis points. Well, move 100 right now. Uh, I I still think we're closer to the end. I think, I mean, and that that you know that uh, uh, Michigan survey is. I, I pointed out last month how far it dropped, and now dropped into record low territory. Wow. I mean, when the unemployment rate 3.6% and, and job was claims, you know, pretty near a 50-year low, I, I'd never seen that before. I, inflation is 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 absolutely the reason. And uh, we got to have someone taking control of that, cooling off the, the jobs market, cooling off the commodity market, um, even the energy market. Because if there's less, uh, I mean, we actually right now have WTI down 1.5% as I look. I mean, it was up earlier today. Uh, just again, on expectations of more tightening, you cool the economy, you will slow oil, uh, you will slow commodities, you will get a hold of the narrative. And getting a hold of the narrative, I think, uh, gives confidence in the people is, yeah, we're taking our medicine and getting this under control.
1: I saw some estimates that going to 75 was no longer a zero probability. Do you think they he, he might get the nerve to do 75 instead of, of – Well,
3: 100? you know, I think Board was pushing for 75 at the last and was comforted by saying, well, I'll, I'll put on the table definitely 250. That's a possibility, certainly, that'll say let's go for 75. I would say the best thing for him to do was say I'm going to bring the July here. Because we don't, you know, I, I've told you that I thought that the neutral rate is between one and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, if he goes 100 now, he will be above neutral. And that is a tightening mode. Uh, you know, beginning quantitative tightening is is actually starting. And we do see signs of definitely cooling off in, in the housing market and elsewhere. That said, there's a lot of inflation in that pipeline. Labor markets are still extremely tight tight, uh, tight and, and we're going to see wage increases and cost increases, which the firms by and large are going to be able to pass on. Margins are not going to be as high as they were at the end of last year. They're still going to be good. And that's why I still think 220, 230 is in the cards up after that. Put that in a present value formula and tell me that we should have a 30% drop in stocks uh, it doesn't go by the formula. doesn't mean emotion won't bring you there, but it doesn't go by the formula.
1: Professor, I know it's a busy day. Um, we got a big week next week. We we'll look forward to get your thoughts and the reaction yeah. uh, after it all happens. Yeah, after the, after the Fed moves. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks, <laughs> Professor. I'm going to come back to you, Jason Li Chen. Um, well, Jason, any quick response to what you heard from the professor on on, on his outlook for the fed and, and and all this uh taking place in the economy here
2: oh uh you know i know uh, uh professor siegel you know kind of speaks from the classic text of how to manage uh inflation and he what he says makes a lot of sense uh you know the medicine however you know i think we all know this does come with a lot of side effects right like uh stock market's going to drop and the uh, real estate market's going to have to drop at some point like like uh, professor jeremy siegel mentioned you move that discount, right, it's going to impact all risk assets. So I guess the question to everyone, and I guess the policymakers looking at this very carefully, is, uh, you know, we're, we're applying chemo to cure cancer. But at some point, you might kill the host before you kill the cancer. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that risk is not uh, out of the realm, right? Uh, a lot of the key drivers of inflation, be it, uh, you know, external, like, the shanghai lockdown that's impacting china export be it like the ukrainian uh, conflict that's impacting grain prices oil prices um you know there's not a whole lot we can do about that uh, you can cool off demand but uh, if the cost of getting goods over here is that high you can cool off demand that's still not gonna uh, reduce prices as much as we'd like to and it may in the short run look like the feds lost control and and the market may ask for a heavier dosage, but that may actually be a case where um, you you apply too strong of medicine, and the, the the body may 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 actually cease functioning before you cure the disease.
1: Yeah, I mean, see so was definitely the monetarist kind of. Uh... You know what's driving this inflation is all the money in the system and I think he would he was he's been saying something like eighty percent is the money supply and then twenty percent is the other supply chain stuff but it it's gonna be interesting dynamic let's let's come back to China since that's been the the theme um of 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 our conversation when, when, we we were just talking about the politics in the beginning you know before we took the, the the quick break let when when you think about the opportunities today um and and this the valuations the mean reversion p- political factors you were just talking about where do you think china tech is the big tech um that like of the alibabas ten cents baidu type of companies are they now getting to what you think is Undue valuations based on their growth rates or is there other places of China that you think are are much more interesting Given the growth dynamics and valuation mix that you have
2: Yeah, so obviously a lot of you'll look at China big tech because in the US We're just so trained to just look at our big tech right? That's the only place the actions are and uh, maybe the only place you can buy some growth and make some money uh, so first of all, I would say that uh, that that is a misnomer, right? Just because you know we we spoken prior to the 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 um, you know our our halftime break that, that there are a lot of growth industries. Uh, so what are kind of the headwinds prior to more recently? right? It was people focus on sort of uh, regulation risk, a regulatory crackdown, and that's behind us. so you so you taking that 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 head when you take that risk off. But that's not forget, right? If you sort of just benchmark how far Chinese tech has fallen versus how much, American tech has fallen, you can't say, oh, yeah, you know, Chinese tech has fallen a lot more uh, than U.S. tech. Right. Um, you know, so so a lot of it is uh, actually sentiment now reversing. People are more suspicious of, you know, can tech firms actually deliver on the promise, given that a lot of them are still unprofitable. right? They may have top line growth. But they haven't really, you know, gone to a business model that could make money. right? you look at DD. I don't think DD knows how to make money yet, right? You you look at May right? It's barely squeezing by. So I think that risk is probably much more front and center for global investors who are just evaluating tech, be it China tech uh, or US tech. Uh, And if you say, okay, well, maybe there's some government tailwind now. Could we write that? Well if you're gonna write government tailwind for China, tech is not the place, right? The government is at least now back to neutral, right? Instead of being an adversary, because from a regulatory perspective, they're figuring out how to regulate big data, data privacy and monopoly. But at most, they're back to neutral, which is okay, you know, we probably went a little too hard. Uh that's kinda understand what's going on and then that's not be too much of an obstructionist. Uh where the policy favor is really going to be aimed at. Like you got to look at the favorite sons of China, right? The state-owned enterprises, the big employers, right? That's where they're targeting the real economy. State-owned enterprise give them a lot more control. They pump money in, they pump credit in, and those state-owned enterprises will go in and invest. They'll go and hire, right? Unlike in the U.S., if you pump money into the banks, the banks may not lend out money, right? In China, you don't have that problem if the money's pumped into the state-owned enterprises. So you're going to see the state-owned enterprises being the the big recipient. So, you know, value play will likely do well because most of the state-owned enterprises uh, sort of screen as sort of value stocks. So I think, you know, value will do well. The big state-owned dominated sectors, uh, a lot of manufacturing, uh, finance are going to do well. Um, and really, uh, a big turnaround, V-shaped turnaround, construction is going to do well. Uh, the government went hard at the construction sector, uh, feeling like there was way too much leverage in that sector. Uh, it's, felt it's sort of gotten things under control. The Evergrande default was very idiosyncratic. Sure, you know a few other uh, you know real estate development companies got in trouble, but by and large, the entire sector is fairly stabilized. I think the government's uh, going to allow credit going back that sector to you know uh, you know drive GDP uh, because construction has always been the most reliable driver of GDP for China, uh, reliable driver of um, employment. So I'm gonna. I, I think those less sexy, traditional, uh, very brick and mortar uh, sectors are going to be the, the the winner in the short run, on the on the kind of front end of that policy tailwind. Uh,
0: and if I may add, um, in China, indeed, um, when China's economy is not doing well, the government utilized uh, uh, state-owned enterprises as a one way to increase credit. Actually, this morning, you know. Some of the uh, credit numbers came out and you can see that it is using uh, that channel. On the other hand, after the, you know, the really bad period uh, of economy uh, went through, like in 2008, uh, the ex-state owned uh, companies kind of took the baton and run. So. Um, unless you have a very good uh, timing, you know between uh, between the state-owned and value growth, sometimes I I will say uh, in some way is a little bit difficult. But over um, if your if your thesis is that China's growth will be able to go through this difficult period, then the ex state-owned private businesses in the end will will be able to make the most uh, uh, profitability. Uh, uh, the second point is that. I think uh, China's uh, tech regulations, like financial, uh, limit on financial risk. China is very much, uh, uh, much more set on the than U.S. in limiting leverage. Um, even the economy was so bad, the central bank does not budge to cut cut rate, you know, which is indeed uh, uh, quite distinct from the Fed policy. Um, and, and I think that will continue that. So that it's not going to, you know, pump significant money through through interest rate cuts, or through, um, you know, complete loosening of the China tech, the anti-regulate, anti-trust um, regulation of huge platform companies. Um, as long as those ones are, you know, within the w- within the realm of uh, economic ideas, um, they those will continue. It's it's not going to. Uh, uh, wild again. And that's why I think in China, when it comes to China, you really want to be broad uh, invested than just uh, China tech.
1: J- Jason, it's, I, when you made a comment that China tech is going from negative to neutral, you know, it, you, there's opportunity when you go from terrible to like just slightly terrible. So maybe, <laughs> that is, maybe that's something there. Um, I, I want to talk uh, what I mean, you you you've focused on U.S. markets, global markets in your days at Research Affiliates. You're now focused on Asia. What would you say? Is there a and, and you said the alpha opportunities are very very high in China. Like if you were to say, you think the factors that you find the most unique to Asia, differing from the other markets, is there things you would say stand out as as really specific to? To China, or Asia generally,
2: what 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 has you the most excited of all the the factors that you're you're focused on? Yeah, I would say two camps of factors. Uh, I found them to be kind of most intellectually exciting as I'm doing research work. Uh, one is sort of reviving a lot of what we have discovered in the U.S. literature, uh, early days, uh, you know, in the '80s, uh, that have. Because it stopped working, we just don't teach them anymore. We don't talk about them anymore. We certainly don't create a product based on them. So there's like this vibrant literature, um, uh, corporate governance, uh, on forensic accounting. And by and large, in the U.S., you know, quality of corporate governance uh, has improved, and certainly analysts pay a lot of attention on it. No one plays, you know, the kind of games that a, you know, the Enron and WorldCom of the yesteryears play, because that's just so transparent with the modern forensic auditing. Techniques, but in China, these debt factors work really well, right? So a lot of my work is sort of reviving uh, factors that have stopped working in the U.S. and then applying them in in China, and just finding uh, tremendous success with uh, these uh, you know governance factors, uh, audit integrity factors. Um, You know, something else that's exciting are sort of brand new research that are very specific to China. I we call them the you know localized. Uh, China factors so things like state connectedness uh, we talked about in the earlier part of the show right? that's something you don't see anywhere else in the world and they make a tremendous amount of uh, difference in terms of understanding how things work uh, you know you look at uh, China is another um, Country where there's actually a lot more data than you imagine and because they're not so sensitive about data privacy if you ask nicely you can get a lot of data from the exchange uh, and so, um, you can do a lot of analysis on insider holdings, changes in insider holdings almost in real time, like shares pledging, all of that has to be filed. And so you can really have a real time understanding of how management is actually thinking about their own stock. Uh, so I'll share one, one last thing, which is fascinating. Um, so what we're starting to do is so natural language processing and scrape websites and understand, you know, sort of text narrative. And what we found is the stock exchanges, right? The stock exchange in the U.S. are for-profit businesses, right? They provide a listing venue. There's some basic, you know, rules and regulations, but by and large, they, they provide a venue for trading, and they, they they really just want, you know, firms to be listed and traded. The stock exchanges in China are regulators, right? So they're not for-profit, and they have a lot of, you know, political uh, liabilities, right? If you list a, a bad company, there's liability for the guy who runs the stock exchange. So in China... You are not allowed to lose money. Okay, that's kind of a funny rule, but you're not allowed to lose money. Right? If you lose money for one year, the stock exchange will come and like slap you on the face and say, "What's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, maintain a positive EPS or positive EPS growth?" If so you lose money again, they'll, you know, sanction you. If you lose money again, you'll get delisted. Right. So firms in China are terrified of losing money, and so they do aggressive earnings smoothing. Not because they're evil or they're trying to hype up prices. They actually underreport earnings and keep a lot in reserve so they can smooth earnings because they literally are not allowed to lose money, right? Mm -hmm. There are penalties against that. And so you just got to understand that when you build factors and look at accounting. And in addition to that, what the exchanges do is they actually have an army of researchers that are sort of researching companies like a sell side firm would. And they make that information available. Again, they want to Tell investors like good company, bad companies, because again, you know, when I spoke with the exchange GM last time I talked to him, he says his biggest concern are retail individuals protesting outside the exchange because they invested in some stock that crater. right? And so they're trying to produce a lot of information to help educate the retail individuals, and so they have like reports are literally like muddy water on their own companies that talk about all the bad things that's happening at these companies. Uh, the one of the funniest one was they went after a scallop farming company. And the scallop farming company, you know, make up excuses on why they failed to meet earnings. They said their scallops swam away, and they said their scallop got COVID. So the exchanges got so pissed off at that. They had satellite imaging of the seed bed and said, look, you know, we got, you know, these satellite images over time, and you just never planted the scallops there. (laughs) Uh, and they make that research available, and people don't actually read them, and they don't react to them. And then, so as a disciplined investor who just sort of read that information, you know, scrape it off the tech uh, the website and use that information to build factors, again, you get you get a lot of uh, alpha from that.
0: Yeah, actually, Jason, it was so interesting because just a few days ago, I was tweeting about a company that tried to uh, list in Shanghai Stock Exchange. But on their uh, IPO, they they were saying that you know they haven't paid the uh, insurance, uh, the social security insurance for their employees, and you know the, uh, the the media and the stock exchange obviously was not very happy that you know they do that. So these are very unique to China.
1: Well, I- we are we are basically running out of time, uh, Jason. This was a lot of fun conversation. I think we could talk for another hour here. Um, it, it, if you want to, if people want to find more information, where to, where would you suggest they follow you,
2: follow your team's work? Yeah, so first of all, um, you know, I I publish quite actively on LinkedIn, so do find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look under my my handle, you know, just you know, look for Jason Sue at Raylian R A Y L I A N T, and you'll find me. Uh, there's a newsletter we call the Bridge. Right? we're trying to bridge you know the East and the West to help you understand Asia better. So subscribe to our newsletter, The Bridge. Uh, again, you know, look up Raylian and you'll find the link to The Bridge.
1: Thanks, Lee Chen, for joining. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius 132. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.